Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It sure is great to be back on the air, and I know for all of you who live in the United States, uh, tomorrow's a big day, Thanksgiving Day. Hopefully, uh, for those of you who have been ardent listeners and are uh, traveling, I hope that your travels have been safe or you know will be safe, depending, on, depending upon where you are uh, going to from point A to point B. But as I said from my uh, previous podcast segment, uh, celebrating Thanksgiving uh, should not always have to be confined to the month of November. Uh, to think uh, many years ago, or rather I should say centuries ago, before Thanksgiving became an, an official uh, federal holiday in 1863, people celebrated Thanksgiving as a means of um, an abundant harvest, or when a drought ended, um, those are just a few of the many um uh, reasons for why people often celebrated uh, Thanksgiving um, feasts, not just feasts, but things to be thankful for, uh, for various uh, purposes. So therefore, it should not always be confined to um, Thanksgiving Day, sitting down and having turkey and all the other uh, big fixins. I was also reminded uh, yesterday, and it is hard to believe that yesterday marked 59 years to the day President uh, John F. Kennedy was assassinated. I wasn't alive in 1963, but I've uh, tried to put myself in the shoes of those who were alive, being that of uh, my parents. Of course, they are still alive, but as I've said before, and even as my dad has told me, uh, when President Kennedy died, it was his 9-11. There was a, a terrible loss of innocence and as I recall my dad telling me, <clears throat> he was in school. The teacher came in and just um, was very sad. My dad thought right away that maybe something um, happened uh, to a family member um, regarding uh, the teacher. And then as they left um, the classroom, um, the teacher, I think my dad said the teacher just said, I'm just not in the mood right now to talk. And so the class respected the teacher's wishes, but it, it turned out that it was um, right about the time when uh, they transferred uh, from one classroom to another. So as my dad said, as they were making their way to the um, to his next classroom, the um, principal went over the loud comm and um, gave the whole student body the news of what had happened. And as my dad said, it was you could just hear uh, pins dropping. And that's just how uh, profound the event itself was. And then watching the news for 72 hours straight. I mean, prior to President Kennedy's assassination, if you got the evening news, it might have lasted 15 to 30 minutes. And most of your news at one time was print media. So for 72 hours in the aftermath of President Kennedy's assassination, people were glued to their televisions only to discover that right before President Kennedy's funeral procession took place uh, the day before, Lee Harvey Oswald was being transferred from the Dallas County Jail to, uh, I believe it was the Dallas City Jail. He never made it. Uh, Jack Ruby, um, who uh, ran the Carousel Club, who had uh, deep ties to the Dallas Police Department, uh, barged in and uh, shot Oswald. My dad said to me, you know, Kirk, as soon as I witnessed that on television, I knew that um, that this was a much bigger plot. So 
long story short, I've uh, been very intrigued by the Kennedy assassination for quite some time. I've read uh, many books, and and I'm currently reading a book called 26 Seconds, a history of the Zapruder film by Alexandra Zapruder, who just so happens to be the granddaughter of the late Abraham Zapruder, who died 52 years ago in 1970. It was Alexandra's grandfather that um, took the famous 8mm film of Kennedy's um, ride from Houston onto Elm Street onto the Stemmons Freeway that would have taken him to the Dallas Trademark, but sadly that never happened. Zapruder watched, he watched in horror because he never thought that in a million years that he would, that the film he had um, taken would lead to something so historical that it shook America's innocence forever. So, yes, President Kennedy has been gone 59 years, but his legacy must live on. Uh, to think that he was president for a thousand days, he tried very hard um, to win the Cold War without firing a shot, but uh, there were those whom obviously did not like President Kennedy. It doesn't make it right, but sadly... Um, a lot of innocence was lost on uh, November 22nd, 1963. So therefore, we must always keep President Kennedy in, in our thoughts and prayers, given that he um, ushered in the new frontier, and really, it was Camelot. As Jackie Kennedy said after he had died, for one shining moment, it really, our time in the White House was, was Camelot. Well, we definitely need to um, focus our energies on... Um, the next uh, podcast segment to the other side of the night, uh, the Carpathia, the Californian, and the night the Titanic was lost by Daniel Allen Butler. In this uh, podcast segment, we're going to learn about uh, one ship's arrival into New York Harbor, another ship's arrival into Boston, and we're going to learn about a uh, U.S. senator from Michigan who uh, goes about uh, conducting an inquiry into the uh, Titanic sinking. So let's get this show on the road and be prepared for our lead-off question for this uh, podcast segment. So here we go, folks. As Carpathia was making her way into New York Harbor Thursday evening, April the 18th of 1912, what were the weather conditions like? I know some of you are thinking, why does that make a difference? Well, I could tell you this much. It's not sunny, and it's not partly cloudy. But sometimes it is worth pointing out what the weather conditions are like. Well, it just so happens that the evening of April 18th uh, was described as being cold, which included rain-drenching precipitation. By 6 p.m. on April the 18th, a crowd began assembling at Cunard Pier Station, awaiting Carpathia's arrival. By 9 p.m., more than 30,000 people were spotted along the east bank of the Hudson River. I can't imagine what that must have been like to have seen, but to think 30,000 people have, are spotted along the east bank of the Hudson River. At the tip of Manhattan, another 10,000 people surrounded the battery, and, it, and come 9 p.m., Carpathia was spotted in the Ambrose Channel. She was first welcomed by tugboats, ferry boats, yachts, people aboard um, one of the... Um, Large um, tugs were part of an official party linked to the New York City mayor and numerous city commissioners. You know, it's one thing to welcome the Carpathia, but 
I don't know if we should be going all out, having a grand celebration. I mean, yes, we. I, 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 think, I think it's fair to say <laughs> that many um, people are happy to know that the Carpathia did rescue those who survived um, that horrible night of April 15th, uh, just three days earlier, uh, whom survived the Titanic. But yet, you know, it's one thing to celebrate a, um, a welcoming home, but I don't know if it's a true welcoming home to the survivors of the Titanic, knowing that their lives have been changed forever. Not just, not just knowing that they survived something that uh, they never thought they would have experienced, but knowing that loved ones are no longer with them. There's a lot of psychological uh, intake to this, if you ask me. Now, prior to Carpathia's official docking, <clears throat> had some reporters tried getting off their boats by making their way up the boarding ladder onto Carpathia. Believe it or not, folks, I hate to tell you this, but there are reporters who are so desperate for the instant news. They are so desperate that they'll do whatever it takes to violate boundaries. Even in 1912, you've got people doing this. Perhaps it could be largely said, and it doesn't make an excuse, but it might be fair to say that many of these news reporters have never really covered anything big until just now. And we have to remember, too, folks, we're not even anywhere close to entering uh, World War One. I. I mean, we've got a few years to go, but the United States isn't going to enter the war until um, until the latter years of World War One itself. So, I, there again, I think it's fair to say that for many of these uh, news reporters, they are so desperate uh, to get the news because it's a big event, they've never covered anything like this before, so they're going to do whatever it takes to um, overstep some boundaries. So yes, five reporters successfully achieved getting off their boats and making their way up the boarding ladder onto Carpathia. But Captain Rostron took immediate action. He sent his uh, third officer, Eric Reese, uh, by... Um, by diffusing the situation and getting a hold of one of the reporters and hauled him onto a boarding ladder only to punch the reporter in the mouth by then saying, pilot only. You know, in today's time, if a uh, officer um, reprimanded a reporter by use of force, that would have gone viral in a heartbeat. The officer would have been out of a job and yes, it might not have sounded right for this officer to have uh, gotten a hold of a reporter and um, punch him in the face. But, in, but if the um, reporter himself knew just how much the Carpathia crew had endured within the last couple of days, that reporter would have thought twice before overstepping his boundaries and getting onto the uh, ship. So perhaps there was a little bit of a lesson taught here. I'm not saying that the use of violence is appropriate, but depending on the times and circumstances, like what was going on in 1912 in the midst of Titanic sinking, and we have some reporters whom are violating um, ethical boundaries, yes, uh, the Carpathia's crew has to be extra vigilant. 
They've got to uh, ensure that the uh, well-being of Titanic's uh, survivors are taken into consideration. They also have to think about their their own well-being as well as that of their own uh, passengers, uh, being the Carpathia passengers. So uh, the bottom line is, is that everyone else's security and well-being must not be taken lightly just because a few people are, um, are obsessed on... Um, obtaining um, instant gratification and getting the uh, utmost breaking news there is available. So another reporter began crying where he proclaimed his sister was aboard the ship and he needed to see her. <laughs> Officer Reese didn't believe the story, and good for him, and he also thwarted off a $200 bribe from the reporter himself. Boy, I, I tell you, you know, if, if somebody tells you no, that you should not be here, listen to them. I mean, yes, somebody out there probably would have... There's always one person out there who might be um, dumb enough to fall for something, but thank heavens the Carpathia crew was smart enough not to fall for any bribes, because who knows what these reporters would have done to the survivors in terms of hounding them with 20 questions or more if they had it their way if they had it their way by being allowed access um, into the quarters of where Titanic survivors uh, were being stationed. Now did uh, Carpathia officially dock at the Cunard uh, pier station? Eventually she will folks, but she doesn't do it right away. She officially went about docking at the White Star Pier Station where Captain Rostron and his crew, their primary task centered upon returning Titanic's lifeboats to her rightful owners, the White Star Line. I, can only, I can't imagine what that must have been like, having to return lifeboats to another uh, company, knowing that the, sh that the largest liner, not just so much on their shipping line, but the largest ocean liner in the world of that time had sunk. It turns out that the uh, lifeboats that had Titanic's name on them shortly after they were returned, uh, the name Titanic was, scraped, was scrapped from the lifeboats, and <clears throat> they were used for um, other boats that were a part of the uh, White Star fleet. Well, I guess it wouldn't have hurt to... Um, use those boats for other, um, to use those lifeboats. But at the same time, it would be kind of hard knowing that if I'm the commander of another uh, White Star Line boat and I'm now having to um, take on lifeboats that belong to um, one of my sister ships that was the largest ocean liner in the world, and now that ship is gone forever, and here are these lifeboats that sh should serve as a reminder of those who survived. And, um, you know, their stories shouldn't be forgotten. Even the lifeboats have a story to tell, too. I mean, it's a miracle to think that that all the lifeboats, that, that lifeboats were, lo were lowered. But it turns out that not all, um, the Titanic, yes, had 20 lifeboats. But if I'm not mistaken, I do believe that only... Uh, that Carpathia in the end uh, collected only 14. So if that's the case, then it probably should, that would tell us right there that um, either six lifeboats uh, foundered when the Titanic sank. That's the only thing I could think of, but um, 
but I can't imagine being uh, Captain Rostron or including members of his crew and having to return these um, lifeboats to their rightful owners. I mean, they did the right thing, but still, it's a painful process. This is not a happy time. After returning Titanic's lifeboats, Carpathia went back to the Cunard Pier Station, where she would permanently dock. Before any passengers got off, there, uh, Captain Rostron and his crew went about um, <clears throat> putting into place canopied platforms or walkways that provided a means of secure exiting. In other words, secure exiting where those who got off would not be hounded right away, but there was a sense of, um, of privacy as, as the uh, passengers got off. Once already docked, the first passengers off the Carpathia were none other um, than um, Carpathia's passengers themselves. Captain Rostron did not want them being stuck in the midst of the chaos or uncertainty for which the Titanic survivors would soon feel. In other words, Captain Rostron... He wanted the Titanic passengers to have a little bit more time to process what they've been through. That's not to say that Carpathia's passengers have felt the wrath and the impact as well. But at the same time, he wants Titanic's passengers to have a little bit more time, not only to process what they've been through, but to be able to, um, but to be able to gradually make their way off the ship. In other words, Rostron's not saying to Titanic survivors, uh, you got an hour, about an hour or less to uh, pack up your stuff and, and get your stuff in gear and get off the ship. You don't do that to survivors who've, uh, who've just been through something so horrific as the 705 whom, whom um, experienced something in their lifetime that will probably never, would probably never go away. Um. William Alden Smith, who was a U.S. Senator from Michigan, he was the uh, Mich he was uh, Michigan's uh, junior U.S. Senator. He was accompanied by two U.S. Marshals, <coughs> pardon me, uh, present at Cunard Pier Station. The U.S. Marshals went about serving a federal subpoena, or rather, I should say, an order to Bruce Ismay, who was chairman of the White Star Line, including surviving members of Titanic's crew. Senator Smith was appointed chairman of the Senate subcommittee designed to investigate Titanic's sinking. Subcommittee, folks, you know, uh, I think most of you know, but for those of you who don't, a subcommittee is part of a formal committee. In other words, it's a committee below the formal committee. Did the Californian uh, dock in New York or Boston harbor? She arrived in Boston Harbor on April the 19th of 1912, one day after uh, Carpathia docked in uh, New York. Ironically, the day that, that the uh, Californian uh, arrived into Boston Harbor, that also marked the same day that the first hearings of the Senate investigation into the Titanic sinking um, got underway in New York. Californian's arrival into Boston Harbor was fanless, and rightfully so. I mean, who's going to want to come out and welcome a captain whom, um, in my opinion, 
not only just did one thing that was despicable, he did multiple things that were despicable in the hours after midnight of April 15th. However, a representative from the Leland Line came aboard and met with Captain uh, Lord inside the ship. We don't know exactly what went on because there's no uh, written activity, although I probably could say that it, it had to have been um, a not-so-pleasant meeting. Let, let's just put it that way. Now, the day before arriving into Boston, it should be noted that two incidents aboard the Californian took place. On the same day, but at different times, Captain Lord met with 2nd Officer Herbert Stone and Apprentice Officer James Gibson. Both men uh, were, were required both men were required to write sworn written accounts describing the events on the morning of April 15th. Both men agreed and once Lord received their accounts, they were placed in California safe. I thought that uh, accounts written accounts should be made available to the public. Well, we're going to hear um, shortly what Stanley Lord thinks about that, because obviously he's got his own ways of thinking. And um, for the rest of the um, for the rest of those who uh, work in the maritime industry, they know that um, written records, yes, they could be stored away in a safe. That's fine. But at some point in time, they should be allowed uh, to be accessible to those whom are in need of the uh, documents. Rumors began surfacing uh, shortly after uh, Californian uh, docked, where the liner herself was nearby Titanic's positioning, 41.46 degrees longitude north, 51.14 degrees latitude west. These rumors um, that have now surfaced are indicating that Californian herself could have come to Titanic's rescue before April the 19th ended. The Boston Traveler, the Boston Globe, and the Boston Globe is still around to this day, to the Boston Evening Transcript sent representatives, so that's three newspaper companies, folks, all three newspaper companies have sent representatives to talk directly to Captain Stanley Lord. And I don't know if this was a smart thing or not on Stanley Lord's part, but he agreed to meet with all of these uh, representatives in, in the ship's chart room. We'll find out here in a moment what Captain Stanley Lord says to these, um, to these uh, newspaper reps. Hang tight for just a moment. I've said it before, I'd say it again, nothing beats a good glass of tea. Hot tea, that is. My wife and I are um, avid tea drinkers, and I'm sure most of you who are listening uh, enjoy a good glass of um, hot tea as well, regardless of the season. Captain Lord uh, provided um, information to reporters where, based upon the information he provided, in his eyes, he was under the assumption that it would cast a better image of him and that it would deflect all outstanding negative rumors already being um, casted upon. 
However, uh, Captain Lord refused to share the log journal um, book. In other words, the log journal that would have had all the entry records, um, all the uh, essentials that go into uh, reporting what um, a ship is doing or what a ship did at certain hours of the day or at night or if a ship spotted um, another ship on the horizon that might have been in need of attention. So Captain Lord has refused to share this the log journal or the entry records to reporters as to what went on during the night of April 14th and into the morning hours after midnight of April 15th. He cited that the log records came under, and this is in quotations, folks, in quotation, folks, state secrets. Well, the Californian is under the Leland line, but at the same time, I don't think it would make a difference whether a ship was under the Leland line, the White Star, Cunard, uh, Hamburg, America, uh, just to name a few of the many um, shipping, uh, transatlantic uh, shipping um, companies whom transported uh, passengers and cargo um, from uh, Europe to America and vice versa, it's fair to say that the Leland Line, like any other shipping line, it's a business, but it's not an independent nation. So a ship's logs, therefore, are always accessible to public oversight at any time. Captain Stanley Lord's refusal to release or report the log journal entries, to me, this marked the beginning of his gradual fall, or I should say downfall. And if a captain is refusing to um, turn over the ship's logs, wouldn't that give um, all the more ammunition for uh, Senator uh, William Smith of Michigan, whom's, whom is going to be conducting this uh, inquiry? Wouldn't that give him all the more ammunition to um, scrutinize and um, ask questions left and right to Captain Lord that would um, ultimately give Senator Smith the upper hand in being able to realize that, hey, Captain Lord is, um, Captain Lord is being unethical, Captain Lord is being uh, dishonest, Captain Lord is hiding secrets that perhaps go beyond the sky ceiling. So the fact that Captain Lord is refusing to uh, share with um, newspaper reps from uh, the Boston Globe, as well as um, as well as the uh, other two, uh, the Boston Evening Transcript, uh, the Boston Traveler, the fact that he's refused to share the ship's um, log with the with the reps of these newspaper uh, companies, uh, that to me is a red flag right there because now the newspaper companies can uh, write up another uh, report in their papers to say that, hey, we met with the captain, we met with Captain Lord, but he refused to share with us vital information. So that could be a great article right there in saying that, hey, the captain's hiding more than we could ever imagine. Who are James McGregor and Ernest Gill? Well, James McGregor was California's uh, ship carpenter, and Ernest Gill was California's assistant engineer. 
McGregor provided an account confirming Californian was close by to where officers on duty saw Titanic's lights, including distress rockets. McGregor's version resembled closely to what had taken place on California's bridge, Californian's bridge and chart room. The officers on duty saw the mystery ship to the south, firing off white rockets for a majority of an hour. The sightings were reported to Captain Lord, whom took no action. Assistant Engineer Ernest McGill, including four fellow engineers, took a reporter where they all met at a notary public. If any of you all know what a, uh, what a notary is, that's where someone um, witnesses uh, somebody else um, notarize. They sign a, a legal document stating that, um, that John Smith witnessed Tom Jones uh, sign a legal document with a party of those whom had um, an important um, interest or matter at stake. So, Ernest, Engineer Ernest Gill, or rather I should say Assistant Engineer Ernest Gill, including four fellow engineers, took a reporter where, where they all met at the notary public and provided a detailed statement maintaining they saw a ship firing rockets after 12 a.m. on the morning of April the 15th, 1912. The ship that they saw was roughly 10 miles away. Second officer Herbert Stone reported saying that he too saw rockets. I tell you, I, I just can't imagine being one of the crewmen on Californian, knowing that, you know, here we've got a captain who is manipulating us, a captain that should have compassion, a captain that should show empathy, but yet a captain who, um, who domineers over those below him to where the crew themselves, they may like what they do, but they don't have a lot of faith in their leader. And I'm sure many of them were also wondering and contemplating that, hey, what if our ship was in trouble? Wouldn't we want a ship 10 miles away to come to our rescue if that was the only ship nearby? Absolutely. I don't know what Captain Lord's thinking, but as I've said before, and I would say it again, um, we, can't, we can't legislate stupidity. And sadly, uh, Captain Lord was a great example of where, unfortunately, um, his, his stupidity could not have been legislated. An affidavit, which is a written statement, uh, was printed in, in a full-story version April the 23rd by the Boston American, which also went as far as sending a full copy to Senator Smith in New York. I tell you, this is good for Senator Smith. The more information he has on hand from uh, those whom uh, served below uh, Captain Lord, whom were, um, whom obviously appear to have, a, who will have a much different story to tell than what Captain Lord himself will tell at the inquiry. This will help um, Senator Smith out immensely. How old uh, was Senator William Alden Smith of Michigan going into the Titanic uh, sinking inquiry? He was 53 years of age. He was born on May the 12th, 1859 in Dojiak, Michigan, which is uh, in the uh, southern end of the state, right along the Michigan-Indiana border near uh, South Bend and Mishawaka, Indiana. And of course, when I think of South Bend, I think of uh, the University of Notre Dame. 
And, of course, if any of you are wondering how South Bend got its name, it's um, located on the um, St. Mary's River, but it's on the southerly bend of the St. Mary's River. So whenever you think of South Bend, think of um, the city being on the southerly bend of the St. Mary's River. And as for Dojiak being on the southern end of uh, Michigan, it's uh, surrounded by cities like Stevensville, Cassopolis, and uh, Benton Harbor. And the only reason I know those cities is because I work in the transportation industry and have done uh, shipments um, in, uh, in those uh, parts of uh, southern Michigan. And ironically, our Estes Terminal, I work for Estes Express Lines and our Estes Terminal in South Bend, Indiana, uh, services uh, those uh, towns that I mentioned um, in southern Michigan. Senator Smith, like everyone else in and outside of Washington, D.C., were terribly saddened by the scope of a tragedy given over 1,500 people's lives had been taken. Prior to and around the time, right up to when Titanic uh, departed Southampton, England, and this should be, uh, we should be reminded of this, that prior to um, the time that, uh, prior to the time of Titanic's departure, Whenever uh, one um, heard of a news report involving the loss of life, it was probably only a couple of people at most. Prior to April the 15th, 1912, loss of life per thousands was just totally unheard or unknown. So, prior to April the 15th of 1912, no maritime disaster at sea had rivaled or exceeded what Titanic endured in her sinking, which resulted in thousands of lives lost. And again, people were accustomed to hearing about a few people perishing, perhaps at sea, but not in the thousands. Of course, when I think of, um, when I think of uh, one of the first... Uh, first um, incidents in America where multiple lives were lost in one night, I think of March 5th, 1770, the uh, infamous Boston Massacre. You know, when when more than one person died, it was usually because of uh, disease-related circumstances, but never in America prior to, prior to my knowledge of 1770, had multiple people died in one night because of gun violence. And what do you know? In today's unstable world, not trying to sound political, massacres have become the norm. It just it doesn't make it right, but it's it's a it's a terrible norm. It's one that has that really does need to be corrected before it's too late. But I think it's fair to say that even in 1912, some began to wonder that okay, if Titanic sank and just over 1,500 people lost their lives, could this become a norm where we learn of other shipwrecks where hundreds or let alone thousands of people lose their lives? But it might be fair to say that the uh, inquiry um, that Senator William Alden Smith is conducting could also go about um, to, uh, could also go about persuading, Congress as a whole to uh, enact um, better legislation to uh, curtail, to better curtail um, unforeseen tragedies like what un- unfolded with Titanic from uh, from uh, not happening uh, frequently. Before uh, becoming 
a, a United States Senator, William Alden Smith, was first elected to the U.S. House of Representatives by serving in Michigan's uh, 5th Congressional District. Uh, he was a Republican. He served in the... While serving in the 57th and 58th Congresses, uh, William Smith uh, became committee chairman on the Pacific Railroads. And believe it or not, before he even came to Congress, he served as a general, he served as general counsel to two Midwestern railroads. This is a significant experience here, folks, because by uh, serving as general counsel to multiple uh, Midwestern railroads, this enabled him to learn how totally dependent passengers, regardless of where they were traveling to by rail, he learned uh, firsthand just how totally dependent passengers were on railroad owners when it came to personal safety. And yes, going by rail in the late 18th century, that was a big deal. Because prior to the railroads coming along, people, you know, they start out going by horse and buggy, and then canals were the big uh, means of uh, transportation, most notably the uh, the Erie Canal that went along the, the Hudson River in New York City all the way to Buffalo, New York, 365 miles. But after canals, it's uh, railroads that uh, take over um, canals, and so people are um, looking for faster service, but if they're looking for faster service, what, what should they expect in return? Top uh, personal safety. But unfortunately for Senator William Alden Smith, he has discovered, he's coming to the realization that by the, by the end of the 19th century and into the start of the 20th century, that most railroad owners are more concerned about profit uh, maximization They'd rather make a profit, and as for anything that pertains to safety, that's just going to be placed second or even, at worst-case scenario, a distant third. So, by, so therefore, for the uh, railroad barons, meaning those who are the owners, um, the wealthy, the scions, you know, those born into privilege, for them, it's all about the almighty dollar. How much stock do we have in the company? But the sad part is, is that for, the, for those whom are solely focusing on profit maximization, this also leads to um, improper um, railroad upkeeping in terms of um, the quality of the tracks and as well as other internal and external uh, matters, which over time led to accidents that led to not only injuries, but also to deaths. And there were a fair number of uh, railroad accidents where you know, people lost their lives. And we may not be talking about two or three people, perhaps over 10. And if there were more than 10 or, worst case scenario, 20 people who died on a railroad um, track because of, the neg because of um, poor uh, shoddy uh, upkeeping, then that, to me, uh, is a sign that uh, there has to be railroad reform. Well, I do know one thing that came about at the start of the 20th century when uh, Teddy Roosevelt, or I should say Theodore Roosevelt, uh, took over for when William McKinley was assassinated. Theodore Roosevelt uh, got led, oversaw 
Congress enacting legislation um, known as the Hepburn Act, which did set the um, which um, which set the uh, standard uh, rates for um, for uh, passenger fares. In other words, Theodore Roosevelt got the nickname of uh, being a trust buster. He broke up the monopolies. And Senator Smith would have been all for breaking up monopolies as well. So his experiences in reforming the railroad industry um, practices let ultimately helped lead to better safety measures, that is, regulations. Regulations alone helped pave the way uh, for what would um, lead to his um, leadership behind investigating uh, the transatlantic um, passenger service system in the aftermath of Titanic sinking. Uh, did legislation already in existence regarding steamship liners on the North Atlantic operate uh, similarly to how uh, the railroad industry had once functioned? Yes, Senator Smith learned firsthand that steamship liners had operated under a laissez-faire style manner. Laissez-faire, folks, is refers to a policy or attitude of allowing actions to take their own course with minimal to no government action. In other words, in other words, uh, by taking no uh, course of action with minimal to no government action. That means you're just allowing um, you're allowing for something to uh, happen um, on its own course, and that and then when it does happen, we'll just fix the problem later. So this laissez-faire um, approach to me is kind of like deregulation. Well, we'll just uh, we'll relax all existing regulations, and we'll let um, we'll let the uh, deregulation style of governing take over to where, you know, we'll allow um, all loopholes to um, to uh, be remained in place much longer uh, than, um, than what is allowed. Senator Smith soon discovered an existing relationship between J.P. Morgan's business ties to railroad and his holdings um, in the International Mercantile Marine, which led him to launch an inquiry. 3.30 p.m. on April the 18th, 1912, Senator Smith, including six members of the subcommittee from the Commerce Committee and two U.S. Marshals, departed Union Station in Washington, D.C. and arrived in New York right as Carpathia docked, Cunard Pier 54. April 19th, the inquiry hearings would begin at, at 10 a.m. in the East Room of the Waldorf Astoria Hotel. How long would Senator Smith's inquiry last? It lasted roughly six weeks. Eighty-two witnesses were called to testify. Twenty-one of them were uh, Titanic uh, passenger survivors. Captain Arthur Rostron, uh, Carpathia's captain, um, testified, including good old Captain Stanley Lord of the um, Californian, as well as all of Titanic's uh, surviving officers. Now, prior to Titanic's maiden voyage in 1911, I didn't know this, but, I, but it is worth mentioning, Senator William Alden Smith received a tour of the Olympic, Titanic's twin sister ship. The tour, believe it or not, was led by Captain Edward J. Smith, whom was captain of the Titanic. Senator um, Smith um, saw firsthand the watertight bulkhead compartments. 
most people in their would in their lifetime would never have gotten to see um, a watertight bulkhead compartment and perhaps a boiler room as well. Now, on May the 25th, 1912, um, one month after Titanic had sunk, Senator Smith, Rear Admiral Richard Watt, Chief Constructor of the United States Navy, along with a Navy stenographer, and in case any of you don't know what a stenographer is, that's a note-taker whom uh, writes down information, uh, that is verbal information, all of them came aboard the Olympic in New York Harbor. H.J. Haddock, Olympic's captain, had the crewmen perform a task of lodging and lowering a lifeboat. Senator Smith and the party uh, whom accompanied him went inside Boiler Room 6 where they surveyed watertight doors and sections of the ship which had fatally doomed Titanic. Can't imagine seeing that firsthand and realizing, gosh... Same features. Twin sister ship is still with us, but the other twin is gone. Was Bruce Ismay, White Star Line chairman, the first to testify on April the 21st, 1912 in New York? Yes, Ismay's cross-examination alone resulted in 58 pages per um per the official uh, transcript document. Following uh, Titanic sinking, Ismay, and this would make practical sense, uh, Bruce Ismay was hounded by the American and British press for leaving Titanic while women and children remained aboard. Some papers went as far as calling him, in quotes, coward of the Titanic. Yes, he would have been better off just going down. Of course, that probably may not have um, excused him entirely, but it would have been better off, for, in my opinion, if Bruce Ismay had just gone down with the ship. After Ismay took the stand, Carpathia Captain Arthur Rostron was next. Rostron's testimony was powerful, as to be expected. He even had tears in his eyes when recalling the memorial service held aboard Carpathia for all whom perished on Titanic, including having a funeral for four victims whom died in Titanic uh, lifeboats prior to Carpathia's official arrival. Captain Rostron, per Senator Smith's request, described the events between April the 14th to the 15th of 1912, including how Carpathia took action following Titanic's distress call. Rostron had with him the typewritten list of all orders issued per the rescue operation involving Titanic. Talk about someone who was very well organized. Talk about having a crew whom went above and beyond to do everything they could to um, make things uh, better modified for all those who survived Titanic. You know, 58 miles away, they came. They tried, and they did what was, they did everything to the best of their ability in ensuring that those whom survived uh, were rescued and uh, and were returned and uh, were brought to New York as safe as possible. Which uh, Titanic officer testified on day three of the hearings, being April the twenty third, nineteen twelve? Officer Fourth Officer Joseph Boxhall, and ironically, April twenty third, 
was the same day that the story behind Californian made its way into two New England newspapers. Officer Boxhall gave an accurate uh, he gave accurate information regarding Titanic's lifeboats, watchkeeping practices performed by her officers, weather conditions on the night of April 14th, the collision with the iceberg, to the process of loading and lowering lifeboats. But one thing Officer Boxhall did make sure to mention before it was too late had to do with the presence of another ship nearby as Titanic was sinking. Officer Boxhall told Senator Smith that he advised Captain Smith of just how close the mystery ship was in relation to where Titanic stood while sinking. Captain Smith instructed Officer Boxhall to contact the nearby ship via Morse lamp, but never received a definitive response from the mystery ship. Boxhall's testimony was backed by other surviving Titanic officers. Senator Smith, like the other senators on the subcommittee, were totally perplexed by the mystery ship's inactivity, unwillingness to respond to multiple distress rockets. Rightfully so. I know Senator Smith is going to be very anxious to hear about Captain uh, Stanley Lord's um, accounts because I know that he wants to get to the uh, bottom of it, and rightfully so. Well, I will say this, folks. We have um, covered a lot of ground. We always do, but I think that's always a good thing because uh, by covering a lot of ground, we know that we've... Um, we know that we've um, advanced. We know that we have gone from one segment to another knowing that we learned more than what we did before. Not that what we learned before was meaningful, but as we are going along, we are doing everything we can to the best of our ability and um, trying to solve a mystery. A mystery that still... Um, that still perplexes historians 110 years later. Yes, historians know more about Titanic sinking than what would have been made available well before 1985, simply because for a number of years, technology was not um, accessible in terms of uh, sending. ROVs came about, I want to say, maybe in the late 1960s or the start of the 70s. And in case any of you don't know what ROVs are, they are remotely operated vehicles. I learned about them when um, reading um, a book that uh, Dr. Ballard had written uh, years ago about the Titanic. And I think it was right, yes, it was definitely right after when he and his crew first discovered uh, one of the boiler rooms. So I, I was pretty young when I got the book, but I was intrigued by it nonetheless. But, you know, ever since Dr. Ballard and his crew discovered uh, Titanic, people are learning something new all the time. And to me, I think that's always a good thing. And yes, there are uh, museums, uh, one in uh, Pigeon Forge, and then there's another in Branson, uh, Pigeon Forge, Tennessee, and there's another in Branson, Missouri. I know there's a Titanic Museum in uh, Belfast, Ireland. I thought maybe it'd be worth saving this towards the end of the series. I might even mention it um, again before the end of the series. But one thing I'm always having to remind myself is that on is that yes, um, it's one thing to see Titanic artifacts up close, 
But if there was one thing that Dr. Ballard opposed, he never wanted people bringing up relics from the ship. He felt that all relics belonged at the bottom of the North Atlantic Ocean because for those, who, for those whom survived Titanic and were alive when Dr. Ballard and his crew discovered Titanic, the thought of bringing up relics would serve as painful reminders to those whom survived something so um, horrific. One survivor uh, who died in 1995 or 1996, Ava Hart, I know I mentioned um, her name from a previous podcast, she and her mother survived. Sadly, their father didn't, but when she learned that relics were being brought up it, by uh, future expeditions, uh, which occurred after uh, Ballard's discovery, Ava Hart was appalled by it. She said, for all I know, if any chinaware was being brought up, that could have been the last, the, the plates could have um, been part of the last dinner I had on the Titanic. It could have represented the last time my mother and father and myself, we all had dinner together before my father perished. So for those who uh, survived Titanic, I could see how the relics would have served as a painful reminder. For Dr. Ballard, his wish was for uh, though was for any relics to be brought up brought up were not to uh, be made in terms of uh, being made off of a profit. Um, I do know that there is a Titanic uh, Foundation that oversees um, all of the relics. So if I were to go to Pigeon Forge, or to, more than likely would be Pigeon Forge, Tennessee, given that it's closer than say Branson, Missouri. But if I were to visit Titanic, uh, the Titanic Museum um, in Pigeon Forge, I would be in awe of all the relics that were um, brought up. But I also would have to be reminded of the fact that those who survived were probably uh, traumatized knowing that relics were brought up, relics that could have been connected with them. There are a lot of uh, what-ifs, a lot of unknowns. Yes, it's great to have discoveries be brought up from the depths of the ocean, but at the same time, is it appropriate to be a robber, that is, a, an ocean grave robber? That's where you have to ask um, those, those kinds of ethical questions. That's where you have to ask yourself what's appropriate, not appropriate to do. And even after 37 years, we still wonder how many other secrets does Titanic hold? Oh, I'm sure she still has other secrets. Yes, there are, there are those who say that within 10 to 20 years from now, she might be completely gone. But as uh, James Cameron said in one documentary, he said that Titanic will still be with us 20 years from now. It could be that certain parts of her might erode or deteriorate because of all the corrosion that she has uh, endured um, over the years. But she probably will more than likely still be with us uh, 20 years from now, but in a different state. James Cameron himself has made over 30 dives to the Titanic. And a majority of them obviously were when he was filming um, the movie uh, with 
that uh, had Kate uh, Winslet and Leonardo DiCaprio uh, 25 years ago. Well, we've covered, as I've said before, we've covered a lot of ground, and thank you for your time, as always. And um, I, and I guess I could say uh, one other thing before I wrap this podcast segment up, that when Titanic sank, it might as well have been a 9-11 for its time. A lot of innocence was lost when Titanic sank, because man was under this assumption that the building, construction of Titanic, represented the final triumph of technology over nature. And man was dealt a harsh reminder that he was not the most dominant force on the universe. That belongs to Mother Nature. And even as James Cameron said in a documentary years ago, no matter how hard man tries to outdo Mother Nature, Mother Nature will always have the final, um, the final say. Mother Nature will always have the final outcome. So, yes, Titanic was a piece of uh, majestic work, but even the most sophisticated p pieces of majestic work aren't always going to be around forever. Something can always go wrong, and that something did go wrong on, on the, in the late evening hours of April the 14th, 1912. It carried over into... Uh, the hours after midnight of April 15th, 1912. And what I'm still baffled by, along with many others, is that some people, if for some of you who may not know this, uh, how long did, did it take for Titanic to finally sink? Well, it took her two hours and 40 minutes to sink. So yes, yeah, she hit an iceberg, but she, just, she didn't sink immediately. It took two hours and 40 minutes for her to uh, officially sink. Well, when I'm on the air again next, we're going to learn more about uh, the American um, inquiry or the um, U.S. Uh, Senate's inquiry by William Alden Smith, and it's going to uh, pertain to um, Captain Stanley Lord and the Californian crew. I can't wait to share that one with you because uh, Senator Smith's going to have every right to grill Captain Lord like there's no tomorrow. Thank you for your time, and thank you for being such ardent listeners. Without you all, I don't know where I would be. But again, I thank you from the bottom of my heart. Take care and stay safe.